So uh, I'm going to invite Rob up to speak in, in a moment. Now, hands up who knows what deja vu is. Deja vu is that sense where you've seen or heard something before. And for the first part of his message, you may well have heard or seen this before. So, so what is going on, the reason people are chuckling, is a couple of weeks ago we had to finish the service halfway through when Rob was just getting right into it and was just about to let rip. And, and, and um, to be honest with you, we just want to hear the second part of the message. We want to hear the second part of the, the message. But uh, we know that many of you weren't here, and so, so he's going he's gonna to give us the, the, whole, the whole thing from the beginning. Don't, don't get excited. He's going to come in halfway through or anything like that. Um, so, yes, if it sounds familiar to you, it is. You haven't gone through a time warp or something, and that's where we are. And then next week, we're going to finish our study in the Beatitudes before moving on in, in Matthew. So, Rob, please, brother, come up and please share, share God's word with us. Thank you. Cool. Thank you, Ian. Uh, you guys, uh, there are seats at the front, so if you were, uh, I'm hoping to preach for hours. Um, <laughs> so you're probably going to be struggling to stand for the whole time. Um, as Ian said, uh, it, I'm preaching the same one that I preached a few weeks ago. Um, it's not a thing that preachers often say, but I really hope no one was listening uh, the first time, because uh, then you can all basically it'll be fresh for everyone. Uh, but it's a huge privilege uh, to be able to preach uh, at a baptism service. That really is a... I've never done that before. Uh, and what a joy that is. Uh, it's so exciting to see people um, come to faith and then express that publicly. Uh, and so baptisms are really, really exciting, and it's really, really, really good to be preaching when it's a baptism and to be preaching twice the same sermon. Uh, so that is great. Shall I just pray? Uh, Ian's just prayed, but let me just pray again before we get into the passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that we have access to your word in our language and the freedom to read uh, and to understand it. Uh, and we thank you that you desire us to, to come to know you. And you have given us uh, your revelation so that we can do that. We thank you that you use people uh, in, in a wide variety of ways. And, and we thank you that you use people and people speaking for us to hear your word. Uh, we often, and this is very much true for myself, feel very inadequate as we're as we're faced with the task of, of preaching something so important. And Lord, we thank you that it is not, it is not in, I thank you that it is not in my strength that I preach, uh, but by the grace of God. And Lord, we ask that you would just send your spirit to guide uh, what we learn today. Lord, fire our hearts, uh, help us to be receptive and responsive, um, and help us to come and catch a little glimpse of what we are like, to know ourselves better, to know God better, and to see what God has done for us better. Lord, we pray that would be the case, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Very good. I'm going to have to turn to the passage again, uh, but do keep that open. Uh, and so today we're going to be looking at, uh, we're going back in time, as Ian said, and we're going to be looking at Beatitude number which is verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall be shown mercy. That's the beatitude that we're looking at today. Um, But before we dive in to start thinking about what that beatitude might mean, it is good for us to just step back and think about what the Beatitudes are more generally. Uh, All of the um, preachers we've had over the summer have been doing this, uh, and I hope that that's not been the same old each week. Um, But I think that's a really, really helpful thing for us to do so that we don't take these verses out of context. Uh, It's very hard to preach just from one verse. Uh, And so we're just going to think very briefly about what the Beatitudes mean more generally, what the Beatitudes are. Excellent. And uh, it works. Um, And I've got just two very small points, really, to make that I hope will just set what we think about in terms of mercy in context and allow us not to lose track of what we're doing. Okay? So the first thing is that the Beatitudes are not a requirement in order for us to become or be a Christian. Uh, They're not a test for us to get into heaven. Uh, and they're not some way of us earning favor with God. Often the Beatitudes can read like this, blessed are those if they do this, and then they will get this. Uh, But that flies in the face of all of the Bible's teaching. The first thing that comes is God's grace, we're saved, and then the second thing that comes is that we serve. Um, And I, I think the most helpful way of thinking about this is what it means if we don't understand this. Uh, And if we don't get this, then we think that the Beatitudes is all about us. It's all about me. Uh, Which can lead to either despair, because we think, I can't do it, or arrogance, because we think, I can do it. Do you get that? Uh, If we think that the Beatitudes are all about me, then it either leads us to say, I can't do any of it, or I can do it which will lead us to despair or arrogance. Uh, Both of these things really are just a form of pride because they're about us saying it's all about what I have to do. Okay? And the gospel really saves us from that. So as we're listening to this stuff on mercy and as we're listening to all of these stuff on the Beatitudes, our response should not be, it's about me. Okay? That's point one. Point number two is the second thing is that the Beatitudes are a challenge to Christians. Uh, Sometimes Christians can think, and people who are not Christians can think, that because it's all about God's grace, we now don't have to do anything. Um, But that's not good either. These Beatitudes are a genuine challenge for us as we live. Uh, Which means that if we don't understand this, we listen to the Beatitudes with just apathy. We think, it just doesn't matter. Uh, And again, that's not a good response to the Beatitudes. So the Beatitudes are not things that we should respond to with, I have to do this, and they're not things that we should respond to with, it doesn't matter. Do you get that distinction? I find that really, really helpful because I struggle with both of those things. Um, And and understanding that has really shaped the way that I've prepared to preach on this verse. Um, I think that has really enabled me to see what this verse means well. Um, if that is a struggle in any way, uh, if you, it is quite confusing to think about what it means for God's grace to happen with our works at the same time. If that is confusing, do come and ask. Uh, do come and, and, and ask me afterwards. But hopefully as we work through, some of those answers will become a little bit clearer. Um, and if we keep those two things in mind, I think that's really, really good. 
Okay, that's just that's just by way of introduction, really, just to make sure that we're we know what we're doing when we think about this verse. Uh, but what is mercy? Mercy is uh, the thing that we're looking at today, the subject of mercy. Uh, and what is it? Well, mercy is a biblical word that in an odd sort of way has penetrated into our popular culture more so than other biblical words. Uh, we don't really ever use the word sanctification in any of our films that we watch. And we don't really see the word atonement in any of our pop songs. But the word mercy is everywhere. Uh, there are loads of films that culminate in a character crying out for mercy, or pop songs can often have the theme of forgiveness and mercy quite centrally. Uh, one such example is a song called Mercy by a pop singer called Duffy. Um, you've got to really go there. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and she's a song called Mercy. It was a few years ago now. I don't know whether people will remember it. Um, but in it, she sings these lines. I'm not going to sing them to you, but I am going to read them. It goes like this. I love you, but I've got to stay true. My morals have got me on my knees. I'm begging, please, stop playing games. You've got me begging you for mercy. Why won't you release me? It's quite hard not to sing. <laughs> but they're the lyrics. Uh, that's what she sings. And her song has within it quite a number, I think, of interesting themes related to what we, what we mean when we use this word mercy. Uh, and I have three, just by way of kind of introduction. The first is that mercy is relational. Uh, this singer is obviously in some sort of romantic relationship, or has been, and it's fairly obvious that you can't show mercy to an inanimate object, or have it shown to you. Mercy is somehow part of human relational interaction. Yeah? Uh, the second is that it involves morals. Somehow mercy involves something to do with being good and being bad. She sings, my morals have got me on my knees. So that's part of it. Um, and then finally, mercy involves, and I think this is the most interesting, it involves power. Mercy involves somebody else having control over you if you're the one that is crying out for mercy. Uh, mercy involves somebody else having the potential to hurt you or let you go. It involves begging as she sings and it implies a sort of captivity. Uh, why won't you release me is what she sings as she cries for mercy. And these are all things that mercy holds within itself as meaning. But, as helpful as pop songs can be, they're not really very good for biblical definitions, generally. Uh, and so what does the Bible actually say in terms of mercy? Um, and the Bible uses the word mercy in a number of different contexts. And at the risk of speaking about something that I know next to nothing about... Uh, there are three words, the three Greek words that the Bible uses for well, that we then translate as mercy. Okay, the first one is oiktiermos. No idea how to pronounce it. Presuming it's oiktiermos, it might not be. Um, and this word oiktiermos means p 
pity or compassion that one has for the sufferings of others. You get that? Pity, we know that feeling. We, we see someone suffering and we have compassion for them. Uh, the Bible uses this word of God in 2 Corinthians, and it, and it calls us to be like this in Colossians. We, we, sh- we should see people and feel compassionate if they're suffering, right? The second word, even harder, is splagchinzomai, I would, I would have said. Um, again, I have no idea whether that may be wrong or right, but that's how it's spelled. Uh, and this word really means deep inner feelings of affection and love, okay? So slightly differently, but we can, we can all understand that emotion. Deep inner sense of affection and love. Uh, the Bible tells us that Jesus had this on the crowds in Matthew 9, and often that's translated as compassion, but it could be translated mercy. But the word that John, uh, sorry, Matthew uses here in the Beatitude describes to Jesus is different. This word is the word ilio, which is very easy to pronounce. And that is stronger than the other two words as it speaks of feelings and actions. Okay, you get that? This word describes those who have compassion for the sufferings of others and take active steps to relieve their suffering. Okay? So it's not just being compassionate, it's actually going over and helping someone who is suffering. Uh, So mercy, if you like, a good definition of mercy would be active compassion. Um, I think that is a good definition. And that's the word that Jesus uses here in this beatitude when he says, blessed are the merciful. I think that this helps us make a really useful distinction uh, or, or a really useful, I guess, comparison about mercy between what I'm going to call, quite lamely, the practical and the spiritual. Uh, What I mean by that is very simply, by definition, mercy involves, on the one hand, showing help to the needy, relieving their suffering. Okay? That's quite practical. But we often don't think that mercy, we don't think of mercy in that way. Uh, When Duffy sings, have mercy on me, she's not thinking... I'm really suffering, please give me some aid. Uh, So we often don't think of mercy like this, but a huge part of mercy is help to the needy. Okay? But the Bible always talks about mercy, uh, sorry, the Bible always talks about suffering and aid and need in a spiritual context. uh, I'll spend more time talking about this later, but our biggest problem in this world is not physical suffering or emotional lack of emotional well-being but spiritual brokenness through wrongdoing so mercy doesn't just involve help to the needy it also involves forgiveness to the guilty which is really I think what a pop song like mercy is getting at when they cry have mercy on me what they mean is let me off uh, It's deliver me from the impending judgment that's coming. Okay? So both of these two strands are are given equal weight by Jesus as he he gives his Sermon on the Mount. And they're both part of what the Bible means by mercy. I found that, as I was preparing, amazing. I never really thought of mercy as giving help to the needy. 
Or you may have never really thought of mercy as being forgiving. But both of them are there. Um, We know that this is true because it's epitomized by the way that Jesus himself actually lived. Both healing the sick and raising the, the dead and weeping at the reality of suffering and death, but also forgiving people their sins and dealing with spiritual problems. Both of them are true. Okay, I think I've labored that enough. Um, But what what does this verse actually say? This verse says, blessed are the merciful, which implies that Christians have a calling somehow to be merciful. You understand that? Which means we need to know who we need to be merciful towards, which is the next point. Who Who should we be showing help to? Who are the needy and who are the guilty that we should be showing help to and forgiving? Right? And I think to get an answer to this question, we need to really go back to the beginning of, the, of, of creation. Because the Bible teaches us that we live in a broken world, a world that is not as it should be. That's what brokenness is. If you make something, and, it, and, and you, if you make a chair, and you want it to have four legs, because that's what a chair does, and it has three, that's broken. <laughs> Because it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Yeah? If you wanted to make a chair and make it art, then it would then you could have three legs. Because <laughs> it's not meant to be sat on. Um, and, and I think that our world, that's a useful way of looking at our world. Our world is broken because it's not the way that it should be. Um, we can see the suffering in the world, we can see the hardship, we can see at times the pain and say that's not quite right. Our world wasn't made to be like that. It's broken. So the first part of this beatitude, I think, is fairly obvious. Showing active compassion to the needy involves caring for the suffering people in the world. That's what part of mercy is. Raging against the injustice and poverty in a broken world. Jesus, as already said, exemplified this with healing the sick and comforting people. And this is a huge imperative for Christian living. Looking out for people who are suffering and wanting to show active compassion for them. Okay? But that is not the end of Jesus' teaching here. Often preachers will preach a verse like this and they'll end there. Go out into the world and show compassion. Do some good things for people who are less fortunate than you. Um, But that is not the end of Jesus' teaching because it's not all that mercy means. Mercy also means forgiveness to the guilty. And the Bible teaches that the brokenness of our world, the way that it is not as it should be, comes from our relationship with our maker. If you think back to the silly analogy of a chair, a chair functions as a chair because we make it to sit on. Its meaning lies in its relationship with the one that made it. And that is true, I think, for human beings. Human beings were made to be in a relationship with God. And the Bible says that it is sin, doing wrong things, that cuts us off from God, resulting in the broken world that we live in. And we don't really, I think, need to look very far to see that this is the case. 
while it may not be particularly palatable, and it probably shouldn't be, it's clear, isn't it, that it's true. As we read our papers, as we turn the news on the TV, as we look into our street and watch our fellow human beings, as we even, dare we say it, look into our own hearts, we can see a sense of brokenness there, a constant sense of wrongdoing, the feeling that we can't even live up to our own expectations, let alone God's. In context with this verse, there's a lot we could say there on that point, but in context with this verse, what this means is that because of the brokenness of the world, sometimes people will hurt you. If you are young, like me, it may be quite small. I don't necessarily want to trivialize the sufferings of young people, but it's often the case that those who have lived longer in a broken world have experienced more of its sufferings. It may be simply that a friend has let us down, or a family member has not lived up to our expectations of what a brother or sister or mother or father should be. Even as a, as a young 22-year-old, I can understand something of the reality of suffering as a result of human beings interacting with each other. If you are older, it's possible that that suffering is far more complex. It may be that that friend is now a very close friend, or was, and the rift is now so strong that no words are being spoken. It may be that the family member is now a spouse who has been unfaithful. Again, my intention is not at all to trivialize suffering in, in my own youthfulness. I can't really speak from tons of experience. But I can preach what the Bible preaches, and that is that the reality is that because we live in a broken world, people will hurt us. Which means that the second part of showing active compassion to people in our world is showing forgiveness to those who cause us hurt. Right? You get that? Uh, and the guilty, the guilty, therefore, is everyone around us that hurts us. So I think, that's a, I think that's a good definition of what mercy is. And I think that's a good definition of who we should be merciful towards. We should be showing aid and help to those who are suffering and forgiving those who cause us pain. But I think that if we're really honest, that is quite hard for us to hear. Some, some people may be here thinking, okay, that's good. I like it. I'm going to go away and do it. And brilliant. But I think most of us, if we're really honest, our hearts cry out with, that is really, really, really tough. I, I, I can't do this. And straight away, I think there are three fairly big objections that our hearts cry out when we hear Jesus' words here. And I want to just lead through these objections that we may have to this verse. Certainly they're ones that I have, anyway. Um, there is a very, very, almost kind of perverse shortness to this particular beatitude, and all of the beatitudes, really. This one is only six words in the original Greek. And none of these verses say, do this unless, or do this except. These verses just say, do it. 
This verse doesn't say, blessed are the merciful, unless you have a really, really annoying sibling. (laughs) And then it's okay. Or these verses don't say, blessed are the merciful, unless someone is really, really, really not that sorry. And then you don't have to forgive them. This verse says, blessed are the merciful, (laughs) which is quite hard. This is really unqualified mercy. Even the disciples found this hard, so we are in, I think, good company. Um, We read from Matthew chapter 18, um, and I'd just like us to turn there briefly. Um, Matthew 18 and verse 21. We won't read it all again. Um, But right at the start of this, this passage, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother, his people around him, not his literal brothers? Well, it could be the case. Um, and, he, and he gives what he thinks is the rather high number of seven. Seven times he, he, he thinks is a good amount of times to forgive people. And Jesus says, 77. Don't just forgive people seven times, but 77 times. This is not a, a, a call for us to have a little tally on our walls with how many times we can, we've forgiven people, and when we hit 77, we can stop. Uh, this is really saying unlimited, unqualified forgiveness to people around you. Now, I want to do a very brief thought experiment, uh, and I promise I won't get anyone to raise their hands. And whatever you do, don't turn to the person next to you and talk about it. But I want you to imagine... In your hearts, maybe you do this at home, I don't know. The very worst thing that somebody has ever done to you. And then imagine that not only are they totally, totally, totally unrepentant, but actually they're also blaming you for that very thing. And then imagine that not only are they blaming you, they're doing this over and over and over again. And then read Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 or the start of Matthew 18 objection number one to what Jesus says here is not that it's just slightly unpalatable or a little bit difficult but actually genuinely impossible who on earth who on earth could live like that that is what and all of a sudden what seems like such a short pithy nice verse about being compassionate to other people has become probably one of the most gut-wrenchingly difficult passages in all of scripture unqualified mercy i can't live like that but then this verse seems to get even more complex because it suggests that the one who does somehow against all the odds manage to fulfill jesus teaching here If they do, they will then be blessed. This is just staggeringly countercultural. In the culture that Jesus lived in, a Roman culture, the concept of mercy would have just been laughed at. Supposed to be a weakness of some sort. And certainly the Jews were expecting a Messiah to come to smash the Roman Empire and destroy the tyranny of the slavery that they were in. They were not expecting someone to come and preach that you should turn the other cheek. (laughs) They were expecting a a hero, a warrior. 
And even in our culture, the idea of mercy is something we like, but we don't really like at the same time. Uh, we live in a, in a society that bases itself on retributive justice, don't we? Our legal system is based on this. If we were stood in a law court and the judge pronounced the criminal guilty and then said, don't worry, I'll let you off, that would be scandalous. <laughs> that would be awful. Of course, we, 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 we have punishments that fit the crime. We don't like the idea of letting people off. Take a different example. This, maybe this is slightly more close to home. Imagine standing with one of your siblings in front of your parents, and what and your other sibling has done something wrong, and your dad says to them, you've done something wrong, but don't worry, I'll let you off. What would you think of the other sibling? Well, there's three words. It's fairly obvious. It's not fair. <laughs> They're the words that we would cry. That's not fair. They're the easiest words that come out of a child's lips. That's what we would cry. Now, I'm not at all wanting to suggest here, and neither is Jesus, that we should abolish our law courts. And I'm definitely not giving this verse as ammo to children to use against their parents. But I am wanting to expose something of the apparent injustice of mercy. We find the idea of letting people off deeply unpalatable and totally unfair. If someone does something wrong, they deserve to be punished, right? So not only is Jesus' teaching impossible, it's also unfair. And finally, related to this last one just gone, is that actually... If we somehow manage to do all this, it will ultimately lead us to be fairly unhappy. This verse says that we will be blessed. But in our culture, we know that judgment equals fair, and fair equals happy. How can we possibly be happy with living a life of constantly turning the other cheek? Constantly telling people, don't worry, it doesn't matter, I forgive you. How could we ever do that? And how would that ever make us happy? Jesus' teaching is here surely, at best, quite difficult, and, and, and at worst, just simply preposterous that we could even entertain the idea of living up to this. Well, this is where I finished last time. Um, <laughs> and so I'm glad I can now carry on. I felt slightly bad that I ended on such a note. Um, but we need, to, we need to genuinely ask the question, how is this possible? And thankfully, we've only looked at one half of this verse so far. We've only really looked at part A. There's a second half of the verse. And the first half of the verse is about us being merciful to others. But the second half of the verse is about us having been shown mercy. I've been kind of hinting at it along, all along, but it is easy to miss the central point when listening to a talk like this. Yes, other people are going to hurt you, and yes, you should be merciful 77 times and more. But the reality is that you and I will hurt others. 
And we are guilty of the very thing that others need to show mercy for. In a broken world in which we live as broken people, all are guilty. And so you will not just be the recipient of hurt, you will also be the originator of hurt. We don't really like that. And that's harder for us to hear than we're going to be hurt. It's harder for us to hear that we're going to be the ones that hurt others. There's a brilliant story in um, Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. Uh, I've just finished studying literature at university, and so I could not resist uh, putting some Shakespeare in. I almost preached from Shakespeare, but managed to resist that temptation and preach from the Bible. Um, That's a slight joke. Uh, (laughs) Not true. Um, But there's a brilliant story uh, in one of his plays and in which a guy called Antonio owes a debt. Uh, it's actually not money. It's actually a pound of flesh to a money lender called Shylock. And they're before a judge in the court. And Shylock cries out for justice. Give me justice. And the judge says this. Though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. You may not particularly like Shakespeare, and that's fine. (laughs) Or you may not know of Shakespeare very well if you're not from this country. But you can't deny that he really understood something about human beings. If we cry justice, eventually we will all fall under our own justice system. We'll all fall under the very thing that we cry And so what we realize is that we've been looking at this diagram all wrong. We've been thinking that we're at the top, showing active compassion to those who are suffering and those who hurt us. But the reality is, according to this verse, that God is at the top, showing active compassion to us who are suffering and us who are guilty. And that is just a completely different spin on this verse. I think that really, really helps. I think what we need to learn is that God is a God of real compassion. He really sees our suffering. He really sees the physical suffering, the hardship that we go through, and desires to act, and does. He sees the brokenness and steps in. Now, there's a whole host of questions there that we could ask about suffering, and this is not necessarily a sermon on suffering. So do come and ask afterwards if that is a big question for you. But the point I want to make here is that God cares about our physical well-being. But he also cares about our spiritual well-being. And he sent his own son to die on a cross and who raised, was raised to life in order that the things that we do wrong, the guilt that we have, is put on somebody else. That's the very thing that we're symbolizing as we go through baptism. God actually sent his son, who lived a life that we couldn't, and then died the death that we deserve, holding our sins on his shoulders. 
when God sees Jesus on the cross, he sees a man who is guilty of hurting other people, even though he wasn't. When God sees Jesus on the cross, he sees a man who betrays trust and hurts his friends and goes back on promises. He sees a man, a man who lies and cheats and steals to get his own way. He sees a man who is unfaithful to his spouse. He sees a man who is a murderer, a rapist, a paedophile. The very worst things we can think of in society are laid on Jesus' shoulders on the cross. Think back to what we did earlier, the worst thing that somebody has ever done to you. Let's just slightly change the formula. Again, I promise I'm not asking for hands up here, uh, even more so. Uh, But think now of the worst thing that you have ever done to somebody else. Think now of the the, the, the the thing that you find it hardest to admit. That is laid on the cross, on Jesus' shoulders. When God saw Jesus on the cross, he saw that act. As I've been preparing this, it's something that I've known for a while. But that is mind-blowing. That just blows our minds. God shows mercy to me, to you. The Bible tells us that when we do things wrong, yes, we do them to each other. But first and foremost, we do them to God as the creator of the world. And we stand before God, both needy, suffering, living in a broken world, and guilty, in need of God's forgiveness. And God is a God of active compassion. He steps into this world to deal with our guilt. Thankfully, this results in three glorious truths. We said initially that this was an impossible command. But because Christ has done it for us and to us, the impossible becomes now possible. That is really the point of the parable that we read in Matthew 18. Did you catch that? Jesus tells this right after he gives the impossible command and he says, how can we be merciful? No, sorry. How can we not be merciful when God has shown mercy to us? And it's exactly the same language. How can we not be merciful to others when God has shown mercy to us? And then how, and then the fact that God has shown mercy also to those whom we're to show mercy towards. So the very first thing we need to learn is that God is a God of mercy and forgiveness, and that allows us to forgive those who hurt us. That's the first point. The impossible becomes all of a sudden possible. Secondly, we said that it was unfair. But we learn, don't we, that God does not just brush sin under the carpet as if it doesn't matter. He doesn't pretend like people's sins did not happen. Far from it. Someone died for those sins. And so when we're called to show mercy to people, we're not called to say, don't worry, it doesn't matter, what you've done didn't really hurt me. 
I'll let you off. Biblical mercy is about saying what you did really, 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 really hurt. But it is paid for in Christ. Can you get that? I think that is a, is a, is a mind-blowing truth. The, uh, the American uh, Oprah Winfrey self-help guru, I don't know, uh, once said, true forgiveness is when you can say, thank you for that experience. She's almost right. <laughs> There's certainly something there, but it doesn't go far enough. True forgiveness is about saying, what you did was really, really bad. <laughs> but God has forgiven you. And he's forgiven me for the bad things that I've done. So I forgive you. Which means that actually now it's unfair turns to it's fair. Because all the things that people have done wrong are paid for in Christ. And finally, I'm on my last page, don't worry. Uh, We said that it's unhappy. And, And that turns to happiness. Because we are joyful that we know that our sins are forgiven and as we express mercy to others, that is a glorious picture of God's forgiveness and God showing mercy to us. And so it becomes, we, we are truly blessed as we are merciful. For we have been shown mercy and we will be shown mercy. I have two concluding thoughts to give, kind of application wise. Um, And the first is this. God has shown active compassion to you, a sinner. No matter who you are in this room. If you are a Christian, I hope that you will leave this room singing and dancing. Maybe not literally, because we're quite conservative. But praising God that while you were lost, God made it possible for you to be in a relationship with him. And if you are not a Christian, I want you to leave with the same thing, really. (laughs) But knowing that your brokenness is a really big problem and that all that you do to sort yourself out is but a temporary fix. Turn to Christ and have your sins forgiven. The second thing is, that's the first thing, God has shown active compassion on you, a sinner. The second thing is, Go and show active compassion on other sinners. If you're a Christian, work at this with all of your heart for God's glory. And if you find this hard or know this to be a real challenge, reflect not on things you can do to make it better, but on God's mercy in your own life, because that truly does make it easier. And if you are not a Christian, know that true forgiveness can really only be given in Christ. Non-Christian forgiveness is only really either forgetfulness, I'm just going to pretend it's not as bad as it is, or bitterness. It's so bad I don't know how to respond. Only in Christ can we say what you did was really bad, and yet you are forgiven. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we, we, we want to say thank you, but we don't quite have the right words to express the sense of thanks. But we can try anyway.
Lord, we thank you that you are a God of compassion. We thank you that despite us being people who are broken, you have stepped into this world, that you weep at the reality of suffering and pain, and that you desire people to come to know you, and you have made it possible. Lord, we pray that that would just fire our hearts. Help us to see that clearly, and let our, our, our knowledge of that overflow out into the way we treat others who really, truly do hurt us at times. Lord, let us be people who are merciful and let, and let that mercy just shine out uh, to people who don't know you so that they want to know you. Lord, we pray this and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We're going to sing, uh, and we're going to sing a brilliant song which is called The Compassion Hymn. Um, and I just thought it would be really good to read to you as you guys come up just one of the verses of this song. We're obviously going to sing it, but we often stand up and sing and then sit down without really thinking about what, they, what those words mean. So let me just read to you this. We stood beneath the cross of Calvary and gazed upon your face at the thorns of oppression and the wounds of disgrace. For surely you have borne our suffering and carried our grief as you pardoned the scoffer and showed grace to the thief. And the chorus then ends with, each day we live as an offering of praise as we show to the world your compassion. Let us sing to God's glory.